James 5, 7 through 12 this morning. And James is kind of picking up where he left off. Um, we said that the, kind of the purpose, the reason that James is writing is to, to encourage and exhort those who are hearing this, those who are dispersed, to have a, a, a wholehearted love for God, that they wouldn't be divided. Throughout the, the letter, uh, James describes someone who's, who's not committed wholeheartedly to God as someone who's unstable or divided in their ways. And he, he uses um, so, some other ways to describe it. And one of the ways that he uses it is through the use of the tongue. He, he says that those who aren't able to control the tongue are, are, are unstable. They have, uh, they have impure hearts because the heart or the tongue is an extension of the heart. It speaks forth what is within the heart. And then he goes on right after that to, to talk about how uh, we need to have godly wisdom. And, and that wisdom is most often communicated with the tongue. And so he's kind of tying these things together to show these different areas of life that we struggle in. And, and he starts off the book talking about trials and temptations and going through difficulties in life. And he kind of comes back to that now comes back to the, the idea of going through difficulties and trials, and, he, and he's really touching on the point of suffering, what the point of suffering in the Christian life, and, and what the, the purpose is behind it, and what it should do for us. And so he does this, uh, starting in verse 7, by giving that principle. James's kind of style is to, to give a principle you know, if you will, his kind of topic statement there, and then he's going to give you a couple examples. And so he starts off with his principle here in verse 7, and he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's his, that's his whole exhortation. He's looking for patience. He's looking to, to exhort us to have endurance in this life. At this time, uh, right before this, he gives this warning to the rich. And in verses 5, 1 through 6, he kind of says there, you know, speaking to the rich, come now, and these are rich unbelievers, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And so he's speaking this condemnation upon the rich, and he's doing that because oftentimes as people who are in difficulties, we think that money is a great solution to problems, right? Money fixes everything. And a lot of times it can fix things. But James's point here is that we shouldn't trust in those things because he says that these rich people, they've trusted in their wealth. And in, in the last days, those riches that they've stored up will stand as a judgment against them. And then he kind of rolls into what we have to say here in verse 7, and he says, now you, you people who are suffering, you Christians, you people who are going through difficulties in life, you be patient in suffering. And he tells us, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And, and that's kind of what he's touching on here. When he speaks of the coming of the Lord, he's speaking of the, the original word that it means there is the presence of the Lord, or it would often be used in Greek literature to describe the arrival of the king. He's saying be patient until the king arrives, until the king comes. 
And James here, he's referring to the return of Jesus at the end of history to judge the wicked and to deliver the saints. Those two things. Matthew uh, 24 speaks of this in verse 37 and verse 39. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, Secondly, to deliver the saints is the point of Jesus' return. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who who have fallen asleep. And so there's this expectation of the return of Christ, and we want to be patient in it. We want to endure in it and suffer well until the coming of the Lord. And he uses the word patience there. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Now, when we talk about patience, uh, there, the Bible kind of uses the word patience, and it can also use endurance. And in some places, uh, it's good to divide those things, but here it really means those two things kind of together. It, it, when it speaks of patience, it's speaking of a long-suffering attitude that we are to have toward people. So patience is dealing with a long-suffering with people. That's what he's getting at here. Ephesians 4.2 tells us that we should, be, uh, we should have humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. He, he, it, Paul links in Ephesians 4, patience there with bearing one another in love. Those things, it's, it's dealing with people, being patient with people who we maybe are frustrated with or are having a hard time with or we don't like what they're doing. But we should be patient Bearing with one another in love. And then he has this also this connotation of endurance. And endurance is described, or let me give you a definition for that. It means strong, determined fortitude with which we need to face difficult circumstances. Strong, determined fortitude with which we need to face difficult circumstances. And so here with this idea of, sur- of endurance, it's, it's suffering well, enduring through the situations and circumstances of life. In Romans 8.25, this is a perfect example of kind of what James is communicating here. He says, but if we, Paul says in Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When he says patience there, he's not speaking of enduring with people, but rather endurance in circumstance. And so here, James is saying that we should be patient with people and we should endure difficulties well. When he says, you guys, you you brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. So that's his principle. He's exhorting us to be patient. And these believers who James are writing to, they need to hear this because they're being oppressed. They're being taken advantage of. And they want to, you know, have vengeance. They want to return that. And so not only is James saying, be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord, because at the coming of the Lord, God will judge and he will deliver his people. So these readers, you and I also, will be delivered and God will judge those who are oppressing. Now, James here, he's kind of, he's laying that out. So that way he's by... uh, 
He's implying that his readers should not take vengeance, that they should not take this into their own hands. Now, James kind of gives us an example. He gives us our principle, be patient, wait until the coming of the Lord. Now here's the example. He uses an agrarian example to illustrate his point. He says in verse 7 there, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. So he gives us this illustration of a farmer who prepares a field, who sows seed. He, he gets up early in the morning. He, he you know, gathers uh, his oxen and he pulls them out and he puts the plow to it. And he's doing the hard work of plowing the fields and preparing them and putting in the hard work and clearing out the stones and the weeds. He's put in as much work as he can possibly do there preparing the field. And then he comes through with the, with the seed and sows it very carefully in the rows to make sure everything is proper and it's marked well. And he puts up his little scarecrow to make sure nothing's going to take the crops. He's, he's done everything that he can possibly do. But he cannot assist in the growth of the crop. He can't do anything to see this crop prosper. It's solely in the hands of God. He, uh, this farmer here, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, that, that crop that will come forth through patience. He, he waits until these, uh, these rains come, the early rains and the late rains. Now, the farmer in especially in this region that uh, James is in, in the Mediterranean area, the farmer was particularly dependent upon the early rains and the, the late rains. There, was, there would be an, an early rain that would come in uh, late fall and would come and prepare the soil and would allow for the seed to get a good jump start. And then the other portion would be the later rain that would come in early spring that would allow the, the crop to finally kind of make its last push to be as prosperous as possible there. But even more than, than just this illustration here of James telling us, you can't do anything to help in the meantime. You just need to be like the farmer and be patient and wait. You need to sit back and you plow your field, you put in as much work as you can, and then you sit back and you wait, and you're patient until the time for harvest. James is giving us a little bit more. Because when he uses the example of the early rains and the late rains, those rains historically occurred as markers in the Old Testament of God's faithfulness to his people. And so not only is he saying that these early rains come and these late rains come, he's saying that these rains come as the result of God's divine hand of blessing of the patient farmer who cannot do anything and waits in full trust that the early rains and the latter rains will come. Deuteronomy 11.14 uh, tells us about God's response to his uh, people's obedience and God promises he will give the rain for your land in its season the early rain and latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil 
Jeremiah 5, 24, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for harvest. So God is the one who is overseeing the early rain and the late rain that was so vital to the farming community. He was the one that was entrusted with this. And so the farmer, he doesn't participate in the growth, but he watches over that developing crop carefully. He can't do anything to help it, but he is careful to to pay attention to it, to see that no animals or pests are coming to attack the crop, but he exercises his patience and guards his crop. And so nothing is going to bring about uh, the rains any quicker. Nothing is going to bring that about, and nothing, James is telling us here, is going to speed up the return of Christ by us trying to uh, hasten our, you know, uh, through this season of suffering, through dealing with uh, the difficulties of life. It's not going to make things go quicker. God the Father, just as he will bring the early and late rains in his timing, will have you and I prepared for the return of Christ when it is time. And so James exhorts again the believers in verse 8. He brings them the same exhortation again. You also be patient, just like the farmer. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the first thing he says is be patient. Again, here's the principle. Establish your heart. Watch your heart. The, the need that, he, that James is speaking to is a problem of the heart, fixing your heart. And when he says that established there, what he means is to have this determination, a, a resolve. It, it's to, to, ha, to be completely focused upon it. Uh, a similar, the, the same word was used of Jesus in Luke 9.51 when he is purposing to head to Jerusalem to face the cross. In Luke 9.51, he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It means that he purposed to not be distracted, to not have anything uh, persuade him from going to the cross, from going to Jerusalem. Here, James tells us that we need to be established. We need to be resolved and determined to establish our hearts. So, how do we do that? The establishment of your heart, because again, like the, the early and late rains, belongs to God. The establishing of the heart is accomplished by God. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 So that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It is God who works to establish the heart. And what James is ultimately getting at, again, keep this in mind, big picture here, is a wholehearted pursuit of God. He's telling us to establish our hearts in God, to seek out God, but then that can only be found and we can only be established, establish our hearts through having God establish our hearts. So then it causes us to push back into God and to seek him so that he might establish our hearts. It calls us back to what James was previously speaking of when he was uh, remarking to 
the rich, you know, uh, or excuse me, not the rich, the, uh, the rich Christians there, when he, he says that we should be submitted to God, we should, we should place ourselves under his lordship. When, when we are living in a way of wanting to have established hearts, you want to liken that to the idea of being submitted to God, being under his direction and his influence, his control. And so James, he gives us this direction, establish your hearts, but then he, uh, he gives it to us with a bit of timing. His exhortation is dealing with some bit of time. He, he says in verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's saying Jesus was going to return soon. Establish your hearts. The time is short. You need to get your life together. It's time to get your mind right and your game tight, he says. Not even Jesus knows how long it will be until he returns. Not even Jesus knows. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says, concerning that day or hour of his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so James's exhortation is, be wholehearted, don't be divided, because the return of the Lord is near. And then he goes on in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So he's giving us a principle again that has to do with carrying out this wholehearted aspect, this wholehearted use of the tongue in dealing with suffering. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James kind of returns to this exhortation about the use of the tongue. He says, don't grumble against one another's, uh, against one another, brothers. But that's often the case. When we're under pressure, when we're under difficulties and circumstances, in life, it's easy to grumble. When we're facing a deadline, I mean, last night, I, I had this exact moment where, like, I was in kind of like this grumbling attitude as I'm, I'm waiting for this photograph to be emailed to me so that way I can edit it and send it out again. And there's, like, a bunch of people who are on East Coast time in New York waiting for me to email them the photo. And they're like yelling at my boss on the phone about like getting it done. And I'm sitting on the couch trying to edit this thing as quick as possible. And it, I'm like not getting it to do what I want it to do. It's not looking like how I want it to look. It's not achieving the final goal. And then Kryn kind of comes over like all nicely and she's like, oh, can you, like, help me with this? And I'm like, ah, get out of my way, woman. You know, I'm like, <laughs> all of a sudden, I like, fly off the handle. I'm like, because I'm stressed. I can feel the stress. My boss is like, Do you, did you send it yet? They're yelling at me. You know, like, they keep, they keep calling me and saying, where's the photo? They're freaking out. And then, like, I'm feeling the pressure because I can't get it to do what I want it to do. And I'm, I have an expectation for myself. And I want to represent our studio well and deal with all this stuff. And cringe is kind of like, cruising over all nicely and you know then I'm like and she's and at the same time yeah there's just all this stuff going on I'm feeling the pressure of trying to do that also I'm trying to watch Timmy's no hitter so in all of this happening I'm I'm like I've got all this pressure happening and then I 
see how easy it is to grumble and to fall into this as I'm facing that temporary pressure, even for just a moment. But imagine the long-term pressure of financial hardship, medical difficulties, persecution, and oppression. James says we ought not to be grumbling against one another so that you may not be judged. He's giving us this picture of those who grumble because to James's original readers here, they're facing persecution. They're facing political pressure. It would be easy to turn frustrations on one another. And so when James says this, he says, you know, we shouldn't grumble. And what he means there is like, don't, don't be groaning against one another. It doesn't necessarily mean you even have a problem with your, your brother or, you know, or your neighbor, but rather you're taking out some of this upon them, this frustration that happens. And James uses it, this word to kind of describe complaining uh, against community members, members of of the church here. And he says the reason that we shouldn't do this is so that we may not be judged. And then he reminds us, behold, the judge is standing at the door. So again, calling us again back to the return of Christ, that timing. We shouldn't do this because we already saw when you judge one another, like he talked to us about uh, previously in the sin of partiality and uh, a little bit earlier about worldliness. He says when we've done that, we've set ourselves as a judge against them and we put ourselves in the place of God. So we ought not to do this because it sets ourselves above one another and it puts uh, ourselves as a judge And James tells us that there's only one judge, one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. That belongs to the Father. And so James here gives us uh, this example about the judge standing at the door. But what, again, what he's doing is he's giving us a little bit more than that. James is quoting his half-brother, Jesus. He's he's returning back to... uh, something that Jesus spoke in Matthew 24. He's, when Jesus is speaking about this parable, this lesson of the fig tree, he says in Matthew 24, verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So there's the signs. As soon as you see the, the fig tree's branch and it's tender and there's leaves on it, you know that summer's near because during that time, of year that's the signs of that and then he says so also when you see all these things that Jesus was describing you know that he is near at the very gates he's saying that these signs that are surrounding you should know that the time is short it's near the, the things that you're seeing they should tip you off that the end is near and you need to get your life together But even more than that, also in the context of this lesson of the fig tree, Jesus is speaking to the fact that the tree has leaves and should have fruit at that time, but it doesn't. It's a barren tree. It has signs of life, but does not. And so simultaneously, we're being exhorted to have good fruit, to be wholehearted, to not be simply a barren tree that is in the signs of the times and seeing that the judge is at the door, but not ready. We need to also have that fruit. So he calls on us to produce good fruit and to anticipate 
his return. Now, James tells us it's important in verse 10 and 11 to suffer well and to bear up under stress. And he brings out three points I'm going to give you in sequence here. The first thing that he tells us, he says that we have reason to expect in our suffering, uh, we, need, we have reason to expect the type of suffering, the kind of suffering that will require patience. You know, there's some types of suffering that we're just kind of like, whatever, I'm just going to get through this as quick as possible. But James says that there's a point to this. We're, we're to suffer in a way, and this type of suffering requires some patience from us. There's a point, a purpose to it. Secondly, James will point out that those, uh, that we will call those blessed who were steadfast through these trials. And then thirdly, he gives us the example of Job, which turns out to be his main point here. So verse 10, read with me. He says, take the, uh, oh, as an example of, of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's giving us his first point here. Here's the type of patience that, that you're going to have to require or the type of suffering that's going to require patience. Here's what it looks like. Let me give you an example, brothers. As an example of suffering and patience, you want to see what it looks like of how you, how you should live? Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So when we think of the prophets, we think of people like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, the major prophets that we find in the Old Testament. Let me give you a breakdown. Let me unpack some of these names for you so you can kind of understand what James is getting at here. And these names would be very familiar and you know, natural to James's readers. So the first one, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet. He suffered at the hands of two pagan kings and his own people, but he was faithful to deliver the message that God had given to him. In Jeremiah eleven twenty one, it describes people from Jeremiah's own hometown who were specifically trying to stop him from, the, from his faithfulness to God, from delivering the word of the Lord. It says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. So Jeremiah was trying to be obedient to the Lord in, in doing what God had called him to do, but he had to endure his whole life. These people who were hunting him down, kings who were opposing him, his own people from his own hometown, uh, secondly, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's gnarly. If you haven't read Ezekiel, read it. You'll cry the whole time. <clears throat> Ezekiel suffered a painful death in his family as the backdrop into which he was to deliver his message. In order to be obedient to the Lord, here's what happened with Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, said, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Ezekiel is straight up told that the delight of his eye, his wife, ends up being taken from him. In the, in the following verse, it says, the next morning when, when he, his wife died. 
The Lord told him that this was about to happen so that his purpose might be accomplished. It's a gnarly example of the difficulties of life that we'll experience, but then also the patient endurance. And then it's crazy because you find out what happens, and then right after that, then then Ezekiel says, and I did exactly what the Lord said. You're like, (laughs) my mind is blown. Like, I definitely would have wept if the delight of my eye, my wife died. I wouldn't have been like, so I did what he said. I, you know, it, it was to prove a point. And if you read Ezekiel, you'll, you'll understand, and it's profitable. Uh, Daniel. Daniel uh, was deported. He was thrown in a pit by his brothers. He was deported. He was taken to Egypt. He, you know, he was brought up into... He, he, he excelled in uh, Potiphar's house. He was falsely accused of trying to rape a woman and was put into jail. Just like all this crazy stuff. But without that suffering, Daniel would have never been put into a place to have great power. Or sorry, not Daniel. I was thinking Joseph there. Wrong note. Uh, he went through all these uh, things. Daniel Daniel was also deported uh, from uh, Israel to Babylon. And he was put there in a place uh, of great power there to influence the king. And as he was faithful to the Lord in his window, praying when a decree went out against uh, praying in a time for 30 days in which they were to pray to the king only, Daniel defied that prayer, was placed into the den of lions in order to meet his death, but yet the Lord protected him in that. And then as a result, a royal decree went forth declaring that Daniel's God was the one true God and that everyone ought to worship him. So these great prophets, those who had excelled in their faithfulness to the Lord, they were patient, but they went through great difficulty. One last one, Isaiah. Church history tells us that Isaiah was, he he died a martyr by being sawn in two. I mean, what a crazy way to cap a ministry that begins with God telling you, go preach, but no one's going to listen to you. An incredible, you know, description of these prophets. And Joe James says, take these prophets, these people, you know, take them as an example of endurance, of patience and suffering. Take these prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, One commentator describes this, the point of this, and he says, uh, he kind of recaps this whole passage. He says, faithfulness to God's commands, so far from giving them immunity, he's speaking to these prophets, so far from giving them immunity from suffering actually involved them in it. It brought them in it. Being faithful to God's commands brought them greater suffering, greater, uh, you know, things that they had to endure, greater difficulty. And doing, doing God's will often leads to suffering, difficulties, and hardships. And so James tells us that we ought to learn from these men. And then he says in verse 11, his second point, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. These prophets and those who have gone before us, those who have remained steadfast, we've cons- we consider them blessed. And here, James has kind of given us a throwback to Jesus. He, he says, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says we ought to rejoice in these difficulties because they are because of Christ. They show that we belong to Christ and we are blessed in our faithfulness. Now, blessed, let me remind you, is not the same as being happy. Happiness speaks to the state of our emotions. It's easy to be happy. You know, there's often times where I'm happy because there's new coffees in at the coffee shop and I want to try one of the new ones that I've been anticipating. Or there was a state of happiness last night when I watched the end of the baseball game. And I was running around the living room, super happy. But then, at, at the end of today's game, at the end of today's result, whenever that plays out, if we lose, then there goes my happiness. It's circumstantial. It's built upon the state of my emotions. But blessing, blessedness, refers to the state, uh, our, our, the state of our relationship with God. We have joy. We are blessed. We enjoy God because he has made us his own. We belong to him. He has purchased us with his own blood. And so when James says here that those who remain steadfast are blessed, it's that they're enjoying Jesus, that they are remembering the place in which they belong to God. They're not, you know, it's doubtful that many of these prophets were happy but they were blessed. They weren't really excited at the prospect of facing these difficulties or being thrown in jail or being falsely accused of, of crimes and you know having to be sawn in two. That's not awesome and happy. But there's a deep contentment and joy in Christ that comes as a result of being steadfast. And it sounds very similar to kind of what James started the letter with. In James 1 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Those who withstand the trial, they receive the crown of life. The the person who remains steadfast under trial, he is blessed. And so we're exhorted to remain steadfast under trial. And then he goes on in verse 11, he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And this is his third point. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, when you read the book of Job, it's, it's Job sitting there. He's super bankrolling and rich and Satan. There's this dialogue that happens in heaven where Satan's like, like Job is all pumped and he's like, loves you but like let me deal with him let me cause some difficulty and hardship in his life and then he will not he will curse you and so the lord allows this suffering to take place in job's life and job loses everything he has over a series of events but job never curses the lord he remains faithful and he has many friends who come along even his wife who are like curse god and die you know like you just need to be done he's got these these three friends who are miserable comforters, they're described as. And they come alongside him and they want him to just be like, dude, like you did something wrong. You are to deserve this. 
And when you're there and you see Job's perseverance in it, you're like, yeah, what's the deal? Like, when is this, like, can Job get a break soon? Because all this crazy stuff keeps happening, difficulties of life. And when you read Job's dialogue, Job does complain a lot. He's, he's like, you know, he's very like, woe is me. Like, what, what is the point of all this? He's, you know, he's trying to like comprehend what's happening. But in the midst of that, he never abandons his faith in God. He understands that God is good and sovereign. He clings to God and hopes in God, although he's a bit of a complainer, which, you know, we're kind of working on not being grumbling against one another, something James is working on in all of us. He, he does indeed complain a lot. One commentator says Job, Job's life or, or his suffering is, is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. God does great work under pressure. And so if James's readers would have heard of Job's perseverance, his steadfastness, which no doubt they have, being uh, Jewish Christians, they have also seen the end of the book and what, what uh, God had brought about as the result. In Job 42, verse 5 and 6, this is just like, I love this passage. Job 42, verse 5 and 6, Job confesses that he has finally learned his lesson about the goodness, the sovereign nature of God. And a reference, he gives us reference to God's purpose um, in, in suffering. It says this, Job 42, verse 5 and 6, I have heard of you, Job speaking to the Lord, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see what went on there in Job's life? Job experienced great suffering, great difficulty. He experienced the blessing of God in the beginning there when God had given him great riches and wealth. And Job was a righteous man there. But in that moment, it was, Job describes his, his relationship with the Lord as one that he's only heard. He, he's, he's heard his voice. He's heard of God. But then after going through great difficulty, he says, now I see you. He's not saying that I literally see you, but he's saying I've experienced you. I've known your intimacy and closeness in such a way that I would have never had these things not happen to me. His relationship with the Lord and the Lord's sovereign nature over his sovereign control over his life was evident to him. His knowledge of the Lord was, was replaced, you know, this, this kind of dull nature in which he kind of understood God was replaced now by this vivid encounter. It wasn't just, you know, rumors about God, but it was sitting down and spending time with God. And here, James does the same thing for us. He cites uh, Psalm 103.8, noting God's compassion and mercy. Here with us, James tells us that God's not trying to make 
life difficult for believers. He's not trying to make life hard for us or cause suffering. That's not his goal. But instead, he's showing his mercy in helping us develop character, come to maturity in faith. He's allowing us to focus our attention upon the things that are eternal rather than the things that are temporary. He doesn't focus upon uh, just these short-term blessings, but he's pointing us to the long-term blessings. He's pointing us to the ultimate, the end. He says there in verse uh, 8, or I mean, sorry, verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and here's the purpose, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James says, the whole purpose of this suffering is so you might see and know and experience the Lord as Job did. You might know the Lord's compassion and mercy, that you might not only be people who have heard of him, but that now you can say, I see him with my own eyes. And so James doesn't focus on the blessing that God gives, but the, the idea of knowing God, the knowledge of God, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus, the whole point of eternal life, what eternal life is, is knowing God. And so what James is saying here is, don't worry about knowing this life. Don't worry about building your, your kingdom here on this earth, but rather focus on the eternal. Just as Job was learning to know God through suffering and difficulties, you also know God and you will have eternal life. Just as Jesus was saying, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he finishes in verse 12, where we'll finish today. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, Job gives us uh, one last exhortation in, in kind of beginning to wrap up the end of the book here. He says, above all, do not, uh, sorry, above all, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So James is telling us we shouldn't be taking any of these vows. Uh, you know, they're serious. They're having these oaths that we would take are serious. Now, what is he talking about when he says this? He says, do not swear or do not take oaths. He's not talking about vulgar speech. He's not talking about profanity. He's not saying don't swear like that. He's not talking about cussing. He's talking about using God's name in a guarantee, in creating, uh, swearing that you will do something and using God's name as, you know, the, the way that you're going to make sure your word is reliable. And James wants to kind of highlight this for us because he doesn't want believers or these readers to to go forward with having this, uh, this mindset of, of placing their character alongside God's character. Remember, he's trying to get them to be wholehearted. He's saying, don't put your sketchy character next to God's character. You should just have God's character. You should be like Jesus. Now, the Old Testament did not prohibit 
oaths of any kind, but it demanded that a person be true to your oath. It said if you were going to do it, you had to fulfill it right away. Don't delay. If you're going to make an oath, you need to fulfill it. And then furthermore, in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So the, the problem, the idea that he's getting at is, here is, God doesn't want to be associated with false promises. See how that could be a problem? Jesus appears to let this go even further when he commands the disciples not to swear in Matthew 5. He says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, a couple things here. He's not speaking to legal oaths. So if you have to like go to court and you're in the jury, you can take that oath. He's not speaking to like oaths for like legality purpose. He's not speaking, you know, being under like sworn testimony. The context that James and that Jesus are getting at are situations in which these oaths are being used to make an appearance of a binding agreement. But having in this oath an escape hatch, an escape clause, you know, something that they've said in there that allows them to not be true to their word. These things were being, were happening in this time, and people would, would use an oath to make it seem like they were being entirely truthful, but then they would also have a way to use it as a means of uh, falsehood or, or creating a, an opportunity to back out. And so this is a voluntary oath that he's addressing. And what Jesus and James are getting at are this integrity in our speech, integrity in, in our words. Now, the reason that this is a huge problem, the reason that James is getting at this is because, and, and they end and they say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's because God's not going to create an escape hatch with you. He's like, oh, I promise to save you, except in this one instance that, like, you didn't know about under, like, section 13, clause 24. Like, if you do this, then you're not saved. He's saying that God is completely faithful to his word. He's completely faithful to his promises. He's completely faithful to see you through those trials and tribulations. He's faithful to see you through suffering, and he will not use an escape hatch to say, oh, you're on your own. So believers who claim to have his character, people who claim to follow Jesus, also shouldn't have that type of attitude. You also shouldn't have these lies built into your promises. He says, if you are going to speak, whatever you say, let it be truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let me give you one last verse and we'll wrap up. Numbers 23, 19 describing this it says god is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind he has said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it that's what james is getting at here 
God is wholeheartedly committed to his promises. He's wholeheartedly committed to his word. He's wholeheartedly committed to the things that, we, that he says. And so he will fulfill it. He will do it. Whatever it is that he promises, he will see that it is accomplished. And we as believers ought to be wholehearted in this way. If we say that we are for him, we ought to have our lives reflect that. If we speak and say we are going to do something, we ought to do that. And so when James says, don't make any oaths, don't swear, he's not just saying like, oh, that's bad if you do that. He's saying, you shouldn't have to swear. You shouldn't have to make an oath and say, oh, I promise I'm really going to do that. Your character should be so good in the eyes of your neighbors, in the eyes of fellow man, that when you say you're going to do something, people can know they can count on you. They know that they can receive a faithful service from you. That's what James is calling us to. And that's difficult to do in the face of suffering. Because oftentimes in suffering, it's like, well, how can I get ahead here and make myself a little bit more comfortable in the midst of this? But instead, we're called to be faithful as he is faithful, to rely on him, and to remember that as the prophets suffered, they were blessed in their steadfastness, in their faithfulness. And let me finish with one last verse that James finishes with here, uh, in, or that he starts the book off in James 1, verse Two through four, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The reason that for these things is so that we might be mature, that we might be complete, that we might not have lack, and that we might know the faithful character of God. And that's what James is getting at this morning as he's calling us to. And so we want to pray together this morning that the Lord would accomplish that in our hearts, that he would allow us to be faithful as he is faithful, that he would allow us to endure suffering well, and that we would honor him and that those people who we interact with would see the godly nature and character in our lives and glorify the Father. So let's pray. Lord, we need your help so desperately um, to accomplish these things. Lord, dealing with suffering on its own is really difficult. Dealing with the hardships of life is really difficult, Lord. But yet you came as a man, Lord. You came and you lived in, in this, on this earth, Lord. And you experienced all the things that we experience over the course of life, Lord. And you suffered well. And so as you suffered well, Lord, would you teach us to suffer well, Lord, alongside you. Lord, we want to learn to be victorious and, and to endure well and be patient with one another. We want you to establish our hearts, Lord. We know that we can't do it apart from you. So cause us to, be, um, to press into you, Lord, to, to know you and love you more. Lord, we want to be like that farmer who receives the early rain and the late rain from you, Lord, relying only upon you. We want to be faithful as you are faithful. So, Lord, work within us to cause that growth. Lord, we need your help so desperately. We love you, Jesus.
Amen.